Good morning everyone and hello from Left After Breakfast here on 3CR. Susanna here with you this morning and I'll be joined by the team a little later on. Plus we have a special surprise for you as well. But I want to quickly mention again the cashless debit card and the Indu company, the bank that is behind it. It's all about the transfer of public money to private hands. This is the cashless debit card listener and it's coming for you. Uh, Good morning, you're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. This federal government is all ready to go with rolling out, oh I love that term, rolling out the cashless debit card to everyone who is on a benefit or pension. Everyone. Just remember that, listener, when it comes time to vote and it won't be long before it becomes time to vote. And I am indeed very, very serious about an election coming up soon, listener. Be ready for it. Have your friends ready for it. Have your family ready for it. Have everybody you know ready for it. This has to stop now. This murderous mob has to go. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.com And another little fillet about Indu, that really Australian company making money out of other people's misery. The BL from the bush sent on to me a report from The Guardian, which tells us that Indu was paid more than $2 million in JobKeeper payments while it increased its revenues. Last year, Indu was handed on a plate a nice silver platter, was granted a two-year extension to its contract to keep running their scheme, and they received over $2.1 million in JobKeeper wage subsidies, even though their revenue increased, leading them to post a profit of two and a half million dollars. Now the government says there is no suggestion that Indu did not qualify for the payments under the rules of the scheme and also the government says that they do not have a clawback proficient to recoup money from those companies which outperformed expectations. At the same time, listener, this government has sought to claw back money from 16,000 welfare recipients who were overpaid due to an overlap with JobKeeper payments. It's, It's outrageous, outrageous that this government is chasing individuals for so-called debt for what are really mistakes, genuine mistakes in a confusing system, and mistakes made by government clerks at Service Australia. At the same time, this government is giving millions and millions to billionaires. These people are a murderous mob, listener, and they have to go. See, when you're on welfare benefits, you have to report income from any other source, and that information is used to calculate how much money you're eligible to receive, and then that 
Service Australia start checks the income against tax records, etc. It's a somewhat newer version of the process that led to the robo-debt scandal. Unbelievable. It's disgusting. Billionaires like Jerry Harvey are let off the hook. While ordinary people, welfare recipients who engage with the program in good faith were targeted. Don't forget Wesley College, a prestigious private school just down the road here from 3CR. They were given almost 20 million, almost 20 million in JobKeeper payments and they offered parents discounts of 20%. And don't forget, we've been told, we know already, that millions of dollars in JobKeeper subsidies have been used to pay big dividends. Big dividends to company shareholders. But of course, Morrison says, there's no double standard because both programs have strong compliance frameworks. Strong compliance frameworks. Don't worry about the compliance framework if you're a bloody billionaire. Only worry about it if you're living hand-to-mouth on the doll. If you gather round me, children, a story I will tell About pretty boy Floyd, the outlaw Say that I'm an outlaw, you say that I'm a thief. 
Here's a Christmas dinner for the family's only leave. That's through this world I've wandered, seen lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six gun, and some with a fountain pen. As through your life you travel, as through your life you roam, you won't never see an outlaw drive a family from their home. Thank you. A nice little Woody Guthrie song performed there by Roseanne Cash. As through this life I travel, I see lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six-gun, some with a fountain pen. And isn't that just right? Some with a fountain pen. Why these billionaires are getting our money? Oh, look, it's... Beyond belief. It's beyond belief. It just has to stop. It's time now to hear from the 3CR resident historian, his and her storian, our storian. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Well, hello and good morning again, Glenn. Hello, my dear. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. Fine, fine. Yourself? I'm good as gold, my dear. I love that expression, good as gold. Well, that's the sort of language we use. It's so many old words and sayings have gone into, into the ether. And, um, but speaking of old words and sayings, I'm one of some old events on, on a very famous date close to this week. Yes, which is... Oh, November 11, it's sort of a, it's a, sometimes pernicious, otherwise it's a, it's a very important day, not just in Australia, but across humanity. Yes, last week I was talking about the 5th of November, remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason and plot. And people still say that the only honest man to go through Parliament was Guy Fawkes. He was a reactionary. He was quite a conservative character, but let's leave that unsaid today. I'm not going to go far back for starters. I want to go back to oh, 1880. This, uh, this, sorry, November 11th, 1880. Melbourne. November the 11th, 1880. Yeah, that day a young male, aged 20, 25, was hung at the uh, Melbourne jail. He, around 10 a.m. that day, he drew his last breath on the gallows at the old Melbourne jail. But, um, we sort of forget, not just not just that he died that day, but in the days left for his death, there was um there was meeting they were called monster meetings held in Melbourne to try to annul the sentence, and it was a a petition with thirty two thousand signatures. Thirty three thousand people signed a petition in eighteen eighty. About one tenth of the size of Melbourne's population, if not more, signed petition kind of a clemency for Ned Kelly, who was hung on November 11, 1880. only 25. I forget how young he was. Yes. And that's a long time ago. But November 11, 1880, it's a pernicious day in Australian history. Let's go forward. It's oh, under 40 years. 1918. November 11, 1918. 
Does that have a resonance to you? It does indeed. I do remember November the 11th, 1918. Please tell. It was a bit late for my great-uncle and, well, I suppose for yours. But there was yes. the armistice day. I had a great-uncle who, who never left France. He died May 23, 1917. Frank Where Conrad, about? Frank Conrad, someone in Bullet Court. Uh, Frank Conrad's buried at the Portland Military Cemetery in France. A good Irish Catholic boy from rural New South Wales who went across the world to die for what purpose? Ah, for trade. Well, it was a great trade war. My great uncle was also of the same background, an Irish Catholic background, but he died in Turkey. It was 14 million deaths, not just soldiers and sailors, but civilians. How many? 14 million died. God, that's a lot. And when amongst, you think of it, it was just what a waste of life. Well, amongst those deaths, there was 60,000 Australians. And New Zealanders in there as well. Oh, and they sure counted they, in. Yeah, no, they're separate. They'd be maybe five, ten thousand 10,000 Because on that last day, we're told at 11 o'clock, so 11 a.m. on 11th, 11th, 18th, the guns fell silent. Well, the, peace, the armistice was signed a few hours earlier at 5.45. And between, between that signing and the final guns being fired... 2,738 people died. 2,738 died. And that was the war to end all wars. Yeah, well, it didn't work, did it? At that time, that was before the guns fell silent. What a, a sentence in English. The guns fell silent. And the problem was, every armistice was declared. They hadn't resolved the war properly because you had the Treaty of Versailles, which wasn't finally agreed to until next year, and then enacted the year after which set in motion the seeds for Second World War, just on two decades later. So the war to end all wars wasn't a war to end all the wars. It ended the Russian Empire, it ended the Habsburg Empire, it ended the Kaiser. It made lots of changes around the world. Some good, some not so good, but it didn't end the wars. And whatever changes were made that were for the good, it wasn't worth all that death and carnage. Well, we saw the world's first socialist state appear. We saw the Soviet Union come ahead, you know, the Bolsheviks got power. It replaced a rotten regime. And they led the world forward on a way to a brighter future. But it wasn't going to last away forever. But that's November 18. So we had November 11, 1880. November 11, 1918. And one last November 11, 1975. Oh, yes. Where were you that day, my dear? I know exactly where I was and what I was doing when I heard... On the 11th of November, 1975. i just come from the ABC studios in Ripon Lee and I drove back through Carlton and a fellow that you may recall called Danny Kramer flagged down my car on the corner and said, they sacked Goff. And I said, oh, shut up, or worse to that effect. And drove on a block before I stopped and jumped out and went to a news agent and bought a paper and there it was. People remember where they were at that time. Where were you? You were at school. I was Form 1. And a school teacher said to us, history's been made, get home and speak to your parents. And I went home and my mum was on the phone to Auntie Norma, fraternity, as she used to be, discussing what had happened. They were both very unimpressed, my mum and Auntie Norma. But Whitlam was sacked by Sir John Kerr. The month prior, the, uh, the Senate had blocked bills Willem's government couldn't spend money. And Willem was going to approach Governor-General Sir John Kerr on November 11 to call a half-centred election. And so they blocked the bills. They call it um, blocking supply, didn't yeah. they? So what that meant was there was 
no money for the government to spend. And then you said that Whitlam called a meeting with Kerr. He'd gone, he'd arranged to see Kerr that day to have a half-cent election. Some strange senators, some new people like Bjorki Peterson and various others abusing the system in Australia. And Whitlam decided, no, no, we need to clear the decks. Clear the decks and have a half-cent He went to speak to Kerr about a half-cent election and Kerr said, no, no, no. Goodbye, Mr. Mr. Willem. You're no longer PM. This man from the knob of Noreen and now the PM. And we know now that when Gough went into see Kerr, hiding behind the door in the next room was Malcolm Fraser. The knob of Noreen, I used to call him. I don't care what anyone says about him now. Oh, we got better in his old age. Oh, he was good for refugees. I don't give a poop. I tell you right now, I know what he did and I do not forgive him. My dear brother said to me, look, Goff forgave him. You should too. And I said, no, Goff had no right to forgive him. It's not up to Goff to forgive him. It was up to us, the people of Australia. Well, anyway, Whitlam's government was sacked by this feudal relic, Sir John Kerr. Feudal relic. He finished up as a pitiful excuse for man. But at the end of the day, Kerr... Whitlam, Fraser, all gone. And Queen Betty Bird, Queen Betty Battenberg still rules us all. So what have we done the last 46 <laughs> years? What have we learned? Where have we gone? What have we done? Oh, God, yes, since she's still there. Though, possibly not much longer. Um, she's not well. How old is she? 95, 96? Yeah. Who's next in line? Her son, Charles. Charles, oh, the one that talks to the to the flowers. <laughs> there's a family link there. So let's not be let's not be harsh on the poor it's man. Family link. He's a son. Of course, there's a family link. But was it George the Third who had problems with trees and flowers? And no, George the Third had problems with porphyria, blood disease. Oh, well, one of the family, one of the Georges, had a problem with trees and flowers. But this is what happened to Edinburgh. You mentioned Porphyria. When November 11, 1918 came, the Russian royal family was gone. Uh, and they've been ranked with blood disorders, interbreeding. We know the royal families of Europe had all been one. Yeah, well, because when you have a disease like Porphyria or Haemophilia, Haemophilia. It's the same. They link, they're both blood diseases. When you have them in your family, there's a possibility you can pass it on. But when you marry your first cousin, you've got a stronger possibility. And they did. And the more you marry them, well, have a look at the bloody Habsburgs. That Habsburg jaw, the famous Habsburg jaw. The, the, the Habsburg jaw is a memory, my dear. The Habsburgs, when November 11, 1918 came around, Habsburgs were gone. Good. Good so minutes to them. I'll be gone soon. So today, listeners, you've heard me and Susanna discussing November 11, 1880. 1918, 1975. You're listening to Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And you'll hear my voice very soon again on Susanna Duffy's program. And until I return on the show, you, I will say, as my forebears would say, chocular. <laughs> I remember the day I was no more than a boy Working in an oxide plant at the back of North Petroy Bert Gilchrist told a gaffer Cos Bert Gilchrist had the clout He said they'd given Goth the bullet 
And the lads are walking out And we walked right up that job While the gaffer held the door And watched it on the telly in a TV rental store It was one hell of a situation The kind you just can't gauge There was golf on the steps of Parliament House Saying no maintain the rage In the year of the double dissolution Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in a revolution Stood back and let the fat cats push it out There was violence in the air As I walked back home that night Everyone you'd meet was getting ready for the fight Saying if they're out for trouble Then trouble's what they'll get We started out a colony Then they think we're a colony Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in a revolution Then stood back and let the fat cats push it out But as the weeks went by, the anger turned to wild relief Locks were freed like magic And I watched in disbelief To see a scam so blatant So jacked up and full of holes And the people in their thousands And tossed it at the balls And the year of the double dissolution Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in a revolution Then stood back and let the Push it out Some said they had it coming Some were closer to the mark Who spoke about conspiracy Sinister and dark but history records it and the story will be read How we let them take democracy and stand it on its head In the year of the double dissolution Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in a revolution Then stood back and let the fat cats push it out Australia voted in the revolution Then stood back and let the Bobcats push it out And it's time for that popular correspondent Mark Buckley with Ask Bucko, he'll tell ya Many Australians are still mightily impressed with the state of our nation, especially when we compare it with our rich and powerful ally, the USA. We've managed to somehow avoid all the utter chaos and devastation which they've endured now for close to two years during a a once-in-a-century pandemic. 
Our government's made plenty of mistakes in handling the pandemic, but nothing on the scale of the criminal negligence that Trump and his Republican allies were guilty of. Even now, with Joe Biden attempting to salvage the situation, vaccination appears to be the only way out. But there are gathering signs that we have a particularly immature and really dopey set of parliamentarians in this country, mainly from the loony right think tanks, who are keen to import some really bad American ideas. One reason the American system has faltered recently is that the traditions and their myths of the the origin story have been hijacked and politicised, and the myths have sort of won. Some bad American ideas. Some examples include the notion of personal liberty outweighing the public good, the belief that public health systems are socialist, the idea that education is not a basic human right, but something that you need to buy. Other caustic ideas include the notion that imposing regulations and limits on the private sector are always bad, that global warming is rubbish, that welfare paid is money wasted, that includes pensions, mind you, that citizens should have the right to bear arms, meaning weapons anywhere they like, that any relationship or family based on anything other than the classic nuclear family is immoral, and that reducing taxes on the rich does nothing other than to increase inequality, and that poverty is a sign that a vengeful God is punishing the poor. There are many other silly ideas, but I want to highlight the matter of voter ID, also known as voter suppression, which is definitely on the radar for our own Trumpist-type government. Voter suppression is the first step to authoritarianism. Um, Voter suppression is an ancient and honoured tradition in America, and it continues today. In 1870, when the 15th Amendment was passed, all men, later broadened to include women, were guaranteed the right to vote. This included men of all races, and specifically former slaves. Southern states, still smarting from their loss in the Civil War, set about limiting black access to the vote. These methods included a poll tax, which charged a fee to lodge a vote. Poor whites could gain an exemption from paying the fee, but not poor blacks. Literacy tests were also routinely applied, with many more black Americans being excluded than white Americans. This often related to the level of education achieved by black Americans, which in most cases was inferior, if it was even available. But in other cases, the tests applied were selective, with African Americans often receiving more difficult tests. These measures were gradually phased out during the 1960s, but not before they had disenfranchised generations of otherwise entitled voters. More recently, the Republican Party has refined its methods to suit the times. Until recently, convicted felons were ineligible to vote in the state of Florida. Many with similar names to felons were wrongly purged from the electoral rolls. That law was reversed in 2018, but the Republican state government managed to circumvent the intention of the statute, known as Amendment 4, by making restoration of the right to vote almost impossible. In the election of 2000, George W. Bush won the country by less than 1,000 votes, while convicted felons and some of those with similar names even were purged from the electoral rolls. Convicted felons were, by a huge margin, more likely to be black and more likely to vote Democrat. Although the election last year was not decided by a tiny number of votes, Florida voted for Trump, 
As many as 1.4 million voters were eligible to be restored to the rolls, but only 300,000 were allowed to register. So that meant that 1.1 million voters were disenfranchised, and in any world that would make a difference to the result. That couldn't happen here, we say. Of course that could never happen here, or could it? We have no voter fraud here, so there could be no reason to change the voting rules. Well, yes, it could happen here. Uh, As Caitlin Fitzsimmons reported in the Herald Sun in January this year, the Federal Government's Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters recently included a recommendation to require ID to vote and another recommendation to require ID to enrol or to change address. The chair of the committee is Senator James Patterson, an ex-IPA director. He thinks if he has to show ID to buy a gin and tonic in a club, one not when he's voting. Liberal members of the committee made similar recommendations in their reports on the 2013 and 2016 elections as well. They quoted several submissions in support from the Institute of Public Affairs, again the IPA, and others. Labor and the Greens opposed the recommendations, but they were outvoted. There's a cynical reason for such a simple rule. The more disadvantaged you are, the more difficult it is to conform to what look like petty requirements. And the idea of choice for the majority of Australians is the driver's licence. It might be petty for you and me, but not if you have insecure housing or you're forced to live on the starvation line or if you're fleeing domestic violence. And many disadvantaged people do not own or drive a car. That means they probably don't own a licence and yet they may need to buy some form of photo ID in order simply to vote. The Liberals think that the disadvantaged are more inclined to vote for Labor, so any measure which makes voting or registering to vote more difficult is a good thing. There's a reason why most Australians despise the IPA and and its kind. They appear to be staffed by strange individuals who dream of making life difficult in a range of small and petty ways for the vulnerable. In the case of instituting voter ID for Australia, we would need to accommodate Australia's system of compulsory voting and compulsory enrolment to vote. That would arguably force the electoral commissions, state and federal, to implement inclusion measures such as provision of regulated photo ID for anyone who needs it. Obviously that would send the cost of elections through the roof. This is an example of unintended consequences caused by allowing inexperienced or simply shallow twits to write policy. It's a bad idea designed to take the vote from all Australians, which is a constitutional guarantee. Thank you for listening, especially in this time when we look at at an election with Morrison. Wow. And you can find Bucko at askbucko.com. Now, as I promised earlier, a little bit of working class culture, a poem from Natasha. Capital assumes living labour into itself as though love possessed its body. Karl Marx, Grandis. I'm joining the campaign for shorter working hours since love has taken possession of my heart. I want the extra time to smell the flowers and the leisure to appreciate fine art. Love's labour lives inside the body corporate, dying to put its hands to work 
the change in the hours bought for more or less the rate applied to satisfy industrial exchange. In 79, the Union Carbide men stood strong, sitting in for the 35-hour week. The women stocked the strike cupboard with a long haul when hopes of victory seemed bleak. The eight-hour day, a long-held labour myth, now staring at the hands of time long past, ironic on a face that smiles with an expression that experience knows won't last. To seize the moment when the chains are loose is a decisive act that sets the body free from the bonds of capital. To choose an act of love that binds not only you and me, but all those other bodies kneeling at the shrine of security. With unemployment close at hand, the moment there's a problem on the line, as soon as overtime is really banned. For greed consumes us all like cancer, devouring labour for its malignant growth, an hourly rate that denies the dancer in our life to pledge a troth that integrates work, rest and play above the demands for greater exploitation, so that the body, in possession of true love, respects its duty to create its recreation. So, I've joined the ranks of those who call on those who would make our bodies slaves of capital, for freedom and dignity for all, until our children place fresh flowers on our grave. Ah, good morning, you're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. Well, good morning, Bagman. Ah, good morning, Susan, and good morning to all your listeners. And I come to you today with a sigh of relief. I'm as happy as the proverbial pig in you-know-what. Because we found out from the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and also from Senator Cash, that tradies are not going to lose their youth. Now, you remember six months ago that... When we were speaking about electronic vehicles, Senator Cash and also the Prime Minister of this country said that tradie would lose their use. They also said that families would lose their weekends. So I'm happy as Larry today that none of those things will happen and I'm as happy as Larry to say that the Prime Minister has embraced the new technology of electric vehicles. So it's a, it's a good story all around, and I've got some good stories to come to you later on, Susan. Well, it's good to know that electrical vehicles won't take away my weekend. Well, that was the prediction that was sprouted that families would lose their weekends. I don't know why. Because they would be busy helping Banana Bee Joyce shoot oh. the cows. Oh, right. Barnaby said, if we go electric, we will have to shoot the cows. Oh, did he? I think but... cows must pull cars. I don't understand it, but then who can understand Barnaby? Yes, and uh, Barnaby did say at one stage that uh, a, a leg of lamb would cost $100. <laughs> so 
where you never know where Barney's coming from, and you never know where he's going to. He's coming from the bar, and he's going to another bar. Well, now you're not suggesting that the deputy prime minister of this country may have a problem with the lunatic soup, are you, Susan? But, uh, we can't go into this. <laughs> No, he's a philanderer. So I'm not too sure about being a drunk, but he has, he has he does have a problem with the lunatic soup. Anyway, I got a message this week from a friend of mine, Alison Alloway, and she says, you got to get used to it. She says she was at the hairdressers, and I heard this being globally announced in relation to the COVID pandemic. How easily it rolls off people's tongues, says Alison, of people who like to parrot away without thinking. And they say, oh, we have just got to get used to it, like the flu. Alison says, coronavirus is not the flu. We accept that there will be certain deaths from influenza each year. But how many are we prepared to accept from coronavirus, hmm, she says. Over 900 Australian deaths from coronavirus has been in frail aged people's homes. Do we have to accept that we, if we go into a nursing home, then you are at risk of catching the deadly virus and shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, we just have to get used to that. Are you happy that it might kill your aged mother or father? once they go into the nursing home. And Alison goes on to say about newborn babies who have re who recently caught the uh, deadly coronavirus. And she says, will you just accept that we have to get used to this or will we fight for the babies? Good on you, Alison. Well said. Indeed. Yes. Oh, look, I, I'm a bit, bit reluctant to say this, but I got a message from Mike Carlton. And Mike Carlton, who is a revered journalist, he's been around for a long, long time. And he says, Menzies was Prime Minister when I began in journalism. I've seen 14 MPs come and go. Gee, I would have thought it was more than that. But he says, none was such a contemptible, sleazy, barefaced liar as Morris. I'll go along with that. Oh, well, we, we do have to have respect for the position of Prime Minister, but, uh, you know, Blake tells lies at the drop of a hat, um, simply because he's got God on his side. Makes me wonder. Anyway, because we record on a, a Wednesday, the total deaths from coronavirus on this Wednesday was 114 dead, and 1,003 new COVID-19 cases. And I'll come to that uh, later on when we have a story about how nurses are treated in the emergency wards of this country. It's absolutely shocking. But the good story is Maggie Beer. Now, you know Maggie Beer, don't you? Oh, of course I do. You know, she makes marmalade cakes and... All sorts of things like that. Anyway, she she made a quid. She done all right out, all right out of the uh, out of the business. The gourmet food company on Tuesday 
reported it had been granted a combined $820,500 over the years 2020 and 2021. Well, guess what she done with it? What? She paid it all back. Oh, because she was overpaid. No, 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 no. She was entitled to it. But her business boomed in that time and she didn't need it to pay her staff because she was making a profit. Now, unlike your mate Harvey Norman, or hardly normal, um, kept something like $14 million of the JobKeeper payment, but Maggie Beer, to her credit, paid the money that was given by the government back to the government, to the people who probably needed it. Now, one of the stories of the week, Susan, and you have to listen to it because it's the best show in town. And I mentioned it last week. People go to their search engine and put in the word, the letters IBAC, the, the Commission Against Crime in the State, because the person giving evidence up until today is a bloke called Adam Sumerak. Now, he's saying in the corruption inquiry, he's being investigated by the corruption inquiry into branch stacking in the Labor Party. These are his words, Susan. Sumerak stated that since the inception of the Labor Party, it was custom and practice, and its philosophy was to harvest votes from ethnic communities and other people to vote on their behalf. Now, they're his words, not mine, and I actually witnessed him saying it. Uh, he gave evidence that electoral officers and other staff employed in the electoral office of members of parliament, Marlene Carews, the common practice was to collect ballot papers of ethnic members such as Serbs, Macedonians, Somalis, Italians, Vietnamese, and whatever. And these ballots, the ballot papers pertaining to various Labor Party electoral positions would then be filled out by her staff at the taxpayer's expense. Now, they're doing factional work. It should be noted that Marlene's chief electoral officer was Michael De Bruyne, of the De Bruyne family. Oh, the De Bruyne's, the De Bruyne's. Yeah, I'll be Bruyne, said the Bruyne's, um, of the shop assistant's phone. The staff would then contact the person whom they had voted on behalf of. Now, the person involved didn't didn't fill out the ballot paper. Um, they were filled out by people, the staff in Carew's and Sumerac's office, um, and, uh, and have a functionary, a functionary visit the ethnic member and get them to sign the envelope, empty envelope, I might uh, state, take it back to Marlene's office, stuff the envelope in the signed envelope, and then have a staff member at taxpayers' expense personally take it to ALP headquarters. Now, these are the people that are working as political functionaries for Sumerac and also um, Marlene uh, uh, Carew. It's time, it's time 
that these ethnic warlords are expelled from this party. This was a great party with a history of progressive politics that has been stolen from the working people that it's supposed to represent. And it should be noted here, Susan, we're not anti-Labor, but we are very disappointed. Very disappointed. Very, very. Very, very disappointed. And uh, as I said, Susan, if you want to, it's the best show in town. And the, the commissioner um, had to apparently, or he did, uh, pull up Mr. Sumerak and say, basically, look, I've heard your answers. You waffle on. You keep going with your answers. No one understands them. And by the end, by the end, you get to the end of your answer. I forgot what the question was. Now, that's according to the Commissioner, Robert Redlick, QC and AM. But we've got a good trade union story coming up soon. But this is a quote from the Pope. Now, the Pope? The Pope. Now, you know, you know that I've met two Pope and they've both died, but this is a new one now. <laughs> Perhaps you'd better go and meet him, comrade. <laughs> yeah, this Pope, this Pope said that trade unions have been an essential force for social change, without which a semblance of a decent and humane society is not or is impossible under capitalism. There you go. Now, I've said it all. I've quoted the Pope. Uh, I'll never do it again in my lifetime. I I spoke to a Pope once, one of those dead ones. I mean, I spoke to him when he was still alive. Really? It was the Do one I... before the... There was the Polish one, I don't know. But I yeah. spoke to one of those Popes. But he didn't answer me, but I know he heard what I said. Really? You sure he was alive when you spoke to him? Yes, he was. Oh, right. Maybe he did want to hear what you were saying to him, Susan. Anyway, I've spoken to a couple of them. They're now passed on. Uh, so, as you said, maybe I should uh, visit this one. But, you know, he's got some relevance with what he says. We won't become Catholics again. We won't uh, join the, join the uh, Catholic movement again. But, hey... You see that uh, a decision on whether to force a Chinese company to hand back its ownership of the Port of Darwin. Now, you know that we sold the Port of Darwin to the Chinese. Uncle Eric wouldn't be happy about that. But it could be handed down. There's a decision in the courts that could be handed down in a matter of weeks as the federal government weighs whether to make a move that will further ignite tensions with Beijing. So how would it be if they cancelled the uh, the contract to the Port of Darwin? It shouldn't be given to them in the first place, but there you go. Uncle Eric would be happy as Larry. This madness about China, it's insane. Well, you know, I, I don't take much relevance or don't take much notice of what liberal politicians and, you know, madmen like uh, Uncle Erica Beck and uh, the rest of those uh, rednecks really say about China. Um, I'm quite happy. Um, I will live 
uh, with China being one of our neighbours, and it's not going to worry about. Uh, I'm not, not going to worry about. It's like the old days when Trump was in charge of the free world. Now he's gone. We don't care what he says. We don't care what he thinks. And the president they've got in uh, in Joe Biden, he might be a bit slow, but uh, he's not full of vile. Uh, he's not full of hatred. Uh, and he's not a racist. So I can put up with... I can put up... I can live with the Chinese, Susan. Well, we all can. It's just we have this federal government at the moment who are not concerned with the rest of the world. They're not concerned at all. All they are doing is like the Prime Minister playing to their own electorate. That's right. And how many fights has he picked with other countries at the moment? I think it's up to about four. As you say, he doesn't... Uh, he, he He's pandering to the voters and... I should make a Nostradamus prediction here, Susan, and we do this program on a Wednesday. It goes to air on a Friday, but I think the Pope is in Melbourne for the next three days who? to announce the, the, the Prime who? Did I say the Pope? Yes. Oh, right. Uh, wishful thinking. Uh, the Prime Minister is in Melbourne at this stage for the next three days, and he is about to announce an election in the very near future. He's hiding somewhere. Well, no, he's not. He's out and about. Uh, he's uh, electioneering on the taxpayer's expense before he calls an early election. Before we finish, Susan, you'll tell me when my time's up, to give praise to the people who are working in our hospitals the frontline troops that are keeping our people alive. <sighs> a professor at the Department of Critical Care at the university to every COVID-19 patient receives the best care possible. Now, when you are admitted to hospital, if, whether you're not vaccinated or whether you are vaccinated, he says, we do not Judge, we get on with the job. However, he said the abuse his staff have endured from families of those severely ill and dying with the disease who believe the COVID-19 is a conspiracy has taken a heavy toll. The level of verbal assault our clinical staff have been exposed to in the last six weeks is something I have never, ever experienced in my career. The misinformation, the belief it isn't real and an absolute distress experiencing when their relatives are critically unwell makes it very difficult to have a conversation with them um, because they don't believe that this illness, this virus is deadly. Now, my old man used to say, and I agree with him, you can't put brains in monuments. And that's exactly the way that people who read conspiracy theories on the internet, and I firmly believe that the internet in some ways is a very, very evil device. 
because it tricks people into believing that coronavirus is not real and it also promotes people like the lizard people. Well, that's that's not the internet. That's some people on it who, for their own reasons, are pushing forward idiotic theories. But seriously, seriously, look, if you've got a relative who's in hospital and they're on their last legs, as it were, why are you abusing the nursing staff? Why are you saying, my dad's not dying? He hasn't got coronavirus. It doesn't exist. Oh, gosh, he's dead. Why is he dead? This disease doesn't exist. I mean, what are people doing? Uh, I I think it's got a lot to do with not only the misinformation that's uh, expounded on the internet and those conspiracy theories like QAnon, uh, but it's also a religious factor where people are convinced. Look at the people in, in New Guinea. 1.9% of people in New Guinea are vaccinated. And the reason they are not being vaccinated is because of the, uh, the, the right-wing Christians who have turned them around to believe that God will heal them. Oh, so don't get vaccinated. God will do it. My thoughts and prayers are with you. Oh, for mm. heaven's well, sake. There are those people out there, Susan. But let's finish on the good story. The Australian Workers' Union hopes that more Australians will go into farm work after historic victory at the Fair Work Commission. Now, unions don't go to the Fair Work Commission to have victories. But here is a good one. Fair Work Commission has ordered every farm worker in the country is entitled to a minimum casual pay rate of $25.41 an hour rather than the rates that they have been paid by labour contractors and greedy farmers of $3 an hour. Well, That's got to be a good story, and it's got to be a good story about the people on the ground, the union organisers who have persevered in in that historic victory. Yes, it is. But isn't that amazing? You say a group of workers now must be paid the minimum wage. In what year is it? Well, they've got to be paid the minimum pay rate of $25.41 per hour rather than the $3 an hour that they're being paid. Now, I don't believe that being paid $25.41 an hour is particularly going to increase the price of the vegetables and the produce you may buy in a supermarket or your local shops or whatever. Uh, And if it was, I wouldn't mind paying a little bit more for my meat, my poultry and my vegetables if it meant that the people who were picking them and processing them were paid paid a decent, fair, legal rate of pay. So you don't reckon that a bunch of broccoli will cost $100? No, um, but it doesn't matter anyway, Susan, because the big supermarkets are the ones who are ripping off the farmers in the first place uh, and getting the lowest price that can be possibly uh, paid for their produce uh, and then they pass it on to the workers and they say oh we're being screwed by the supermarket therefore we can only pay you 
$3 an hour. Now, that is called wage theft, and the people who are organising that are labour contractors, the, uh, the migration agents who bite people into this country on false ideals and uh, then force them into doing work for $3 an hour uh, in the hope that they will get permanent residency in this country. $3 an hour. Oh, they're the, they're the, they're the well-paid ones. Ah, oh, <laughs> bloody hell. Look uh, back, man, I just looked out the window at the Collingwood oh, Town Hall clock. Okay, all right, okay. Well, it must be time for me to go then. Um, and I won't go out being cynical, bitter and twisted. Uh, I'm going to say, why don't we go go out in the same old way? Why not? Dare to throw. And dare to win. If you don't fight. Well, you lose. Yeah, and good morning from left after breakfast. Well, it's the end of the program again, dear listener. Thanks for coming along. Thanks for the ride. Don't forget you can catch me on heygo.com slash Susanna. Heygo, H-E-Y-G-O. Heygo.com slash Susanna. And you can listen to our program here, same time, same place, next week.